Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to The Ace, Alex Cardinal Entertainment Network, with your host, the crazy Alex Cardinal from Springfield, Massachusetts. You can expect the unexpected on The Ace Network. Now, on to today's show. I know his supporting cast is great, 
But and James Harden has not been great all season without Dwight Howard, with uh, without any bigs really. But just the fact that Steph Curry's been able to do it and and stay winning, uh, the way he's been able to affect offensively and defensively, which is what James Harden really lacked defensively. And uh, Steph Curry won the top five point guards defensively this year, in my opinion, and he's been able to succeed. He's the MVP. But today, um, in Game One versus New Orleans, what I what pinpointed it for me out was that Anthony Davis got off to kind of not a slow start, but he wasn't he wasn't really as powerful as, as New Orleans would have liked him to be. And Draymond Green was on him for most of the first half. And I think that that limited him a little bit. And, you know, between uh, Davis and Green, they went back and forth over and over, going to the rim. And, um, you know, Anthony Davis blocked Draymond Green a couple of times at the rim. And it was just, it was great to see a defensive battle there. And, uh, it was pretty much a game within the game. Um, but I will say for, for New Orleans, defensively in the second half, they, they kind of stepped on the gas pedal and, and tried to, you know, uh, try to get a good spurt going. And they got it was a game of runs, really, because of New Orleans' defense. And I think that if that continues, they might be able to squeeze out a game or maybe two back in their home city. And, you know, that's that's all that people were looking for for this matchup was how many games can New Orleans win because – I don't think anyone was believing an upset was coming. You know, you're right. And the, the other thing is, though, is that when you look at Anthony Davis, you know, I still got this good feel. I, I got this good feeling that he's going to be a thorn in the side to to Bogut, to David Lee, to uh, Draymond Green, because you know, not only can he play inside, but he can play outside as well. Can help you know New Orleans spread the floor. Just to me, it seemed like New Orleans made very critical mistakes towards the end of the towards the end of the game. Like they started to tighten up a little bit after you know after doing it. And Golden State seemed to be as calm and as cool as collected. Um, what did you get out of Clay Thompson's performance today, though? I mean, some people are saying, you know, yes, Steph Curry's the MVP, but if Clay Thompson doesn't get rolling, they're going, you know, they are going to struggle on the offensive side as well. Yeah, I think Clay's going to be fine regardless. Uh, Clay's had these games. I mean, he's had – Clay's been not inconsistent all season, but he's been you – know, he's had great superstar games, and then he's had games where he's kind of just laid back and let it come to him. And that's the beauty of this team is that Clay can just sit back and, and focus on defending opposing two guards. Like, he can he can take a step back offensively whenever he wants to and say he's not rolling that night, and then he can focus on shutting down the opposing shooting guard, which has been his his bread and butter this season. He has been a much better defender as the years have gone by. I think he's had four years in the league or three, three or four. And each year that he's been in the league, it's just it, it's extended completely. Uh, being able to guard on the ball, coming off screen, being able to defend shooters. like That's what I'm saying. Like If it's, a, if it's an Atlanta and Golden State Finals matchup, the battle within the battle, like uh, Kyle Corver and Clay Thompson being able to guard each other off screens and, and limit each other's weapon, which is three-point shooting, that's what I love for, from Clay. The, the fact that he can pretty much take opposing two guards out of the game and force more pressure on Anthony Davis and the point guards. And I, I, I just wish it was I wish it was Russell Westbrook going against this crowd in, in Golden State because of the fact that Westbrook and Curry, we've seen it a lot, and we've seen how they went at each other and, and Seth Curry and Chris Paul as well together. All these top match point guards, and I feel like we're not getting the, we're not going to get the same from Drew Holiday. And it's sad to say, like Holiday's been underrated, 
throughout his career when he's really like a top 15 or 16 point guard. Uh, definitely that, in my opinion. And he just doesn't get the shine that he that he deserves. But you know, offensively, he's kind of slacked a little bit in the last in the last week or week or so. But defensively, he's there. So. All right, so what's your prediction for this series? I got Golden State winning five games I th- in five. I personally think that they're just going to be too too tough and too strong for the Pelicans. I think the Pelicans will win one of their games at home, but I don't think this series is going past five games. What do you got? Uh, before the playoffs started, or I had every series picked, and it was Golden State in five. Yeah, so I'm matching you there, uh, Nick. I'm definitely going with Golden State in five because – you know, the city of New Orleans needs a win, and I, I can see it being a 3-0 series lead. And then in that game four, the or the the Pelicans rather would would muster up enough, you know, willpower to get one of the games, knowing that their season's on the line. And then after that, go back to Golden State and drop it by 20. I can see that happening. Awesome. Next series we're going to go to, we're going to go to the Milwaukee Bucks versus Chicago Bulls, and Derrick Rose made his presence felt today. 23 points in his first playoff game since 2012. Jimmy Butler scoring 25 points. Very, very strong game for the Bulls, winning 103-91. I just got a funny feeling if there is going to be a playoff series that's going to be a sweep, it's going to be this one, especially if wow. Derrick Rose play like this, you know, for you know, at this type of level, you what do you call them? Chicago's chances just got very, very, very good. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, the Bucks—they're good. They're a solid team, forty-one of forty-one. I mean, Todd Gibson still trying to figure out what the hell he was thinking and getting a playground, a playground <laughs> one by elbowing o, uh, OJ Mayo. I mean, still trying to figure that one out. But what do you, I want to get your take on uh, Chicago's performance. And uh, do you agree that this may be the, the playoff series where the sweep may happen? Yeah, it's funny that before the series, before the playoffs, we all thought that Cleveland and Boston, Atlanta, Brooklyn would be the sweeps. And that I had some people thinking that Bucks would take this to seven or Bucks would win the series. And, I, you know, politely I want to say, are you insane? I, I just don't think that Milwaukee has enough offensively to get to get the job done against a, a top three defense, top three and four defense in Chicago. And that's what I always I've been questioning people. I don't understand how you can look at this Bucks team who hasn't made the playoffs, who didn't make the playoffs last year. The last time they did was with Monte Ellis and Brandon Knight or uh was with uh Brandon Jennings rather and I don't I don't understand how they could think that Milwaukee could win a couple games in Chicago and get this done. But today you know, Derrick Rose, what, what he has to feel good about is his first playoff game in three years, which is awesome, and the fact that he'd done it against a top defensive uh, wing. Like, the, Milwaukee's defensive pressure on the perimeter is, you know, pretty much second to none in the East and, you know, been one of the best East defensive teams in the last uh, couple of months of the season. And I, I love what Jason Gibbs has done, but the fact that Derrick Rose has gotten that – comfortable already and I believe his sixth or seventh game back in the lineup since that uh AC or since that meniscus injury. It it spells danger. If Milwaukee is gonna have any chance they have to limit Rose and limiting Rose from what we've seen today doesn't seem ideal. Yeah, and you're absolutely right about that. It's you know and here's the scary thing about this and this is something that's driving me insane. You know 
a lot of people saying, well, now that Derrick Rose is back, if they make a deep run in the playoffs, Tom Thibodeau may keep his job. In which I just have to take a step back, and I look at these people like, how in God's name are, is the front office even thinking of possibly letting go Tom Thibodeau? He has been one of the best, most consistent coaches in the NBA the last 10 years. It's not his fault that Derrick Rose has been hurt often. Yeah, uh, excuse me. Joakim Noah has been hurt often. Last year, Jimmy Butler got hurt before the playoffs. You know, it's not his fault that, you know, all this stuff is happening, yet he continuously goes out there, brings his team to the playoffs. This year, I think, was his best coaching job ever with all the drama that's been going on behind the scenes. Do you agree that this is should this really should be a non-issue regarding Tom Thibodeau's job? I think it's ridiculous, man. The fact that he has kept him on the map through all these Derrick Rose injuries, the fact that, you know, Jimmy Butler hurt, um, you know, previously, then Noah had knee knee issues. They've had to bring in a, a backup point guard for every single year, whether it be DJ Augustine, Nate Robinson, Kirk Heinrich, Aaron Brooks. They've had all these backup point guards who have come in and succeeded. And, you know, partly because they're good point guards, but also partly because, Tom Thibodeau knows what he's doing, and he might he might not be the best offensive coach. He might not be the best management of players because he plays guys you know forty five minutes a game throughout the season and just wears them down to where come second round or even first round at times like we've seen last year, they're just a, a train wreck because they're so worn out from the season. And I'm thinking that's why Gar Foreman, the general manager for the Bulls, I think that's why he. He's pretty much concerned that he thinks that Tom Thibodeau needs to be let go is because he he wants his players to be feeling better about throughout the regular season grind and he he wants better offensive play he wants a faster style but I think the Bulls have been you know pretty solid this year and if Tom Thibodeau wins this series and, and goes to the second round and contends against Cleveland I think it's a no brainer you keep him hey, there's no way you let go one of the top three defensive coaches there's no way. We got a phone call coming in from the 850 area code. 850 area code. State your name and where you're from, please. All right. St. from Florida. Hey, St. Clair. How you doing? All right. Just kind of watching uh, the dog maps and rockets going at it right now. Do you have a question for uh, both me and uh, Shane Young? Because we're right now we're talking about the where we were just talking about the Bulls game. Uh, the Bulls oh yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was, yeah. I was going to pitch into you know uh, that watch having having watched that game just now. I mean, you know, from Chicago standpoint, it's like you know, Derek. Obviously, Derek Rose he's missed missed a lot of the uh, a lot of games, and you know, watching Thibodeau's record with Rose in there, obviously they're better. But what's more amazing is when, if you look at his record, there's about what still over fifty percent. So it really shows you the preparation that Thibodeau has with his teams. And as far as what, why, why Thibodeau is on the hot seat, it's something I'm trying to figure out. It's kind of like you know when Jim Harbaugh took the Forty Nineers to three consecutive you know conference championship games in a Super Bowl and he still seems to be on the hot seat so I don't know what the deal is with that I mean it's it, for me it's like you know what Thibodeau has done a great job with whoever he has because you know injuries have pretty much plagued his teams through these last you know 
three, four years. I mean, hey, in my mind, he, I think he's going to stay put in Chicago because it's like what other coach are you going to find that's going to be able to, you know, manage, you know, all these injuries like Thibodeau has. Well said, Sinclair. Well said. Why don't you let the people know where they can find you on uh, social media and uh, give a shout? Well, they can find me on uh, Twitter at Miller Patriots. Okay, thanks a lot, Sinclair. Have a good night. All right, you too, man. Now, Sinclair brought up some very good points and something that you and me definitely agree upon. You know, I just actually said that if Tom Thibodeau gets fired, all pretty much almost all the teams in the NBA will line up and try to fall over themselves with contracts in hand to, to, to hire him because he is one of the top five coaches in the NBA. And uh, I just really, I like I said, I just don't get it. I don't know if it's a philosophy thing. I don't know. I don't know if it's because they blame him for all the injuries. I don't know. I, but like I said, the drama is just nonsensical to me. So, going to the next series, the Washington Wizards and the Toronto Raptors. This game went to overtime, and they always say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, that's true, and I always go by the thing, if you ain't broke, don't fix it. And Paul Pierce knows exactly what to do, especially when it comes to the playoffs. The ageless wonder strikes again. He helps. The, the Wizards take game one over the Raptors, in which he had scored five of his 20 points in overtime. Nene had 12 points and 13 rebounds, and they did this without a John Wall good game. That is a scary proposition for any team if the Wizards can win without John Wall balling like he normally does. What say you, Shane Young? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a good sign that John Wall did not shoot the ball well in the first half, and that they still went in halftime with the lead. And but the thing is that Kyle Lowry fouled out, and I believe the I believe the last two minutes of overtime, and um, Demar Derozan had a bad game shooting the ball, and they still had that in overtime. And I know it was at home. And I know that you're supposed to win by more than a marginal amount at home, but. The fact that those two, your your two backcourt players, shot the ball poorly and Toronto stayed in, I think that they have a, a silver lining to them uh, to their game too. But um, what fascinated me about this game is I broke it down for a b-ball breakdown, is that the mid-range game is used constantly between these two teams. Demar Derozan is a guy who's led the Eastern Conference and he's been fourth overall in the NBA in mid-range attempts for the last two months. And he shot great. He he shot 47% on on those mid-range attempts, which is better than everyone except Blake Griffin. So what I love about it is that Washington, you're going up against a team. Washington is the, is the team that does this. They they take more outside or more mid-range jumpers than anybody except for the Lakers and Knicks. So you have, you have a guy that loves mid-range shots and DeRozan going against a, a team that believes in the same philosophy. And – the, the theoretically, that's the kind of shot that you want to force. You want to force a long two if you're a defensive team. You want to force a contested three or contested mid-range shot. And I, it's just going to be a, a defensive war between Dwayne Casey and Randy Whitman. And quite frankly, I don't think Randy Whitman has what it takes as a coach to lead these Wizards 
even when they get back to the Verizon Center. I'm still, I mean, I'm still in Toronto's, you know, bandwagon, so to speak, when it comes to winning this series and getting up against Atlanta. I, I still am. And a little bit of controversy before the game uh, because the Toronto general manager, Masai Ujiri, who last year was fined $25,000 for using profanity, did it again in a pregame speech before, you know, on a big screen outside the arena. And, you know, Pierce, it's ironic because Pierce was on the Nets last year when they played Toronto in the first round, and the Nets won in seven games. And now Pierce is playing Toronto again, this time with the with, with the uh, with the um, with the Wizards. What do you call it? Do you feel that you know there's no need for something like that? You know, when it comes to to, to the M2 NBA playoffs, where someone from another team's front office has to use profanity to try to get fans fired up. Yeah, I don't like the I don't like the profanity part of it. When it comes to Masai Ujiri, you're supposed to be an executive. You're supposed to be the one making decisions for a for a team. And you know, people really believe that he's made a a good change in Toronto. Getting rid of Rudy Gay was obviously the best thing they've ever done. And you know, bringing in everybody that they have now, signing Lowry to another contract. Masai Ujiri's done a great job, but it doesn't it doesn't bode well whenever you have. Uh, him yelling at uh, yelling at the crowd, trying to get them pumped up by using that kind of um, language. But I, I do like the uh, character. I mean, you can't name me another GM in the league. Certainly not Mitch Kupchak at the Lakers. Certainly not um, you know anybody out there that is um, as as charismatic and getting their crowd behind them. And that's what makes Toronto probably the best home atmosphere, the best um, you know fan base out there in the Eastern Conference is because they really think that they have a title team and Masai Ujiri does too. So, I mean, I can I kind of say let him do what he wants, but that's not a good look if you're trying to um, make decisions in the future. And who knows, maybe later on down the line they have to call up Brooklyn or something like that. And, you know, that, that's just not going to – or Brooklyn and, and uh, Washington or something like that. And that's just not going to look good. Now – your prediction for this series, I have the Wizards going in seven games. I really think that this is going to be one of the closest series that is going to be played. It's definitely going to be some tit-for-tat. The only reason why I put them over the top is just because when you have a guy with the playoff moxie and resume as Paul Pierce, you know, and having that on your squad and knowing what he can do during the, during the playoffs, I think that just gives them the, that, that extra added edge. What say you? Uh, Paul Pierce is a great factor, and he's going to be the reason that Washington could win. But I'm taking, I'm sticking with my pick, Raptors and six. And it sounds crazy because they're already in an 0-1 hole, and it, they'll have to go to games three and four, and Washington and split. But the fact that you scored 48 points to bench today, and Washington is a little over the, the 20 mark, they have a stronger bench. Patrick Patterson and Lou Williams, the sixth man of the year, We've seen him get hot today. We we really watched him get hot at the end of the game, and he nearly won the game for them. And when when Dwayne Casey puts him in, in crunch time lineups and situations, I think there's going to be nothing better than having that bench unit behind you, which has been the best bench in the Eastern Conference since March. 
Um, I'm, I'm taking Raptors in six, finishing off in Washington. But they have they have to win the next game. I mean, that, that's something we both agree on. They, they have to win the next one. Very well said. Now, going to the final game that's actually in progress right now, Houston and Dallas. Fear the Beard versus uh, the – I don't know if this is going to be the end of an era with Dirk, with Dirk Nowitzki, you know, after the season it is, is over. But, you know, right now Houston is up 35-25. They've got out to a rip-roaring start. I mean, they looked, they, they looked awesome, but right now it seems like they've gotten a little flat. Dallas is trying, is trying to get back into the game. Obviously, there's a little bit of a backstory with Chandler Parsons, you know, with what happened during the offseason and everything like that. But I have to ask, where do you see this series going? Me personally, I think Houston's going to win. I think it's going to be it's going to be you know a very rough and tumble series. I think Houston's going to take it in six. Uh, I just think they're what do you call it? They're too big and their depth is you know is very very underrated. Where do you see this series going? You know, crazy enough, um, I agree. I think that most people actually have um, Rockets in six, just because five seems a little bit too small for someone coached by Rick Carlisle. Rick Harwell is probably the second best coach in basketball behind Greg Popovich. So, I, and if you give him days in between games, for example, like uh, this game's on uh, Saturday, then I think game two is on Tuesday or Wednesday. If you give him that much time to prep, he's going to figure some stuff out. So the Mavericks have a chance. But then there's also a side of it that ha- that has me saying, you know, James Harden gets to the free throw line so many times, and unless Rick Carlisle employs a um, – Hike a Josh Smith or something along those lines where they can send poor free throw shooters to the line. I think Houston's shooting a record, you know, a record breaking three point shooting offense and, you know, almost a record breaking free throw shooting offense. I think it's going to be too much, too much in a hurry. So if they win these first two games, which it looks like they're going to win game one tonight, um, I would not be surprised if it goes to five and I might be pushing my pick back to, to the Rockets in five. And it seems like it's disrespectful to Dirk Nowitzki uh, for them to work so hard to get 50 wins again. But, you know, you know, I'll take Rockets in five just because I, I don't think that, you know, home court's going to matter too much for Dallas because they cannot defend the perimeter. Rayshon Rondo has not been that much of a help defensively for this team um, as much as you would have liked him to be because he could have long arms and long hands and he's active. Um, Rockets are just going to be a lot better. Now, before I let you go, obviously, what do you call getting off the basketball topic, the hot topic this week was what, what happened with uh, Britt McHenry, the uh, ESPN reporter, who uh, had a little bit of a meltdown with the, uh, you know, with the tow company, and it was caught live on uh, video and pretty much went viral. She's been suspended for a week by ESPN. Though a lot of people are saying that it should have been a month, some people, myself included, think that she should have lost her job. Now, the reason why I think she she lost her job, I totally get. People have bad days. I have a bad day. You have a bad day. You know, but when the tow attend the tow person attendant told Britt McHenry that this is be this is being videotaped. Be careful what you say, and she still went on her rant and was belligerent to the point of no end. 
I'm sorry. You're representing a mega company in e- in ESPN, you know, and it just, what do you call it, with ESPN only suspending her for a week, it's pretty much like, okay, she made a mistake, it'll never happen again type of deal. But I've seen people get fired for saying a lot less than what she did. What's your opinion on this? Um, yeah, I, I kind of, whenever I saw the suspension, because I've seen a couple people suspended from ESPN, Bill Simmons, Stephen A. Smith, um, and I just don't understand how you can only suspend her for a week. You know, I I could see her losing her job because Stephen A. Smith and Bill Simmons, all they do to get suspended is they make something that is perceived as a, a bad comment or something. When Stephen A. Smith was talking about the uh, domestic violence, he didn't say anything out of out of extreme line, I don't think, and he got suspended for two weeks. So, I, and what Britt McHenry done was. You know, miles leaps and bounds worse than anything because she's responding to the public, and she is, um, you know, hurting the ESPN image. And you know, those, um, you know, Simmons and Smith when they're suspended, it's just for something minor. So uh, it's been a lot more harsh. I'll, I'll give you that. And the fact that, here's a here's a good point to make that Britt McHenry is a sideline reporter, and she is someone that is, um, you know, she's dealing with. The public, she's been with other players, she's been with the fans, she's on national television, and she's talking like that on on camera to a tow person, to a tow worker, and it it, is, it, it makes you seem like she's fake whenever she's at a game talking to or interviewing somebody that she's not being real because we've seen who the real person was, we saw that in the video. If that's the real person, then it means that what she's been doing on her job is fake, and I don't think ESPN wants people like that. Very well said. Shane, why don't you let the people to know where they can find you and tell them all about your work at Hoops Habit. You can find me at YoungMBA on Twitter, um, YoungMBA. And I write for HoopsHabit.com. I'll cover the L.A. Lakers and Indiana Pacers, both who have been, you know, um, horrible this season. Let's just put it simple, horrible. And one of them almost made the playoffs in the Pacers. But And at B-Ball Breakdown, I'll write there uh, about twice a week, and it, it's pretty much in-depth. Look at film, um, advanced stats, breaking down what happens throughout the NBA, uh, any teams. I'll, I'll look at all 30 throughout this uh, 2015 year. So it's a, it's a great two sites. You should check them out. Thank you so much, Shane. Thanks, Gov, for coming on. Definitely want to have you on again for what do you call it, for uh, some more NBA playoff talk. And uh, you have a good night, all right? You too, man. Thanks. All right, that was Shane Young from HoopsHabit.com talking some NBA playoffs. We're going to move on to our next segment right now. And, you know, it's not every day where you get a former Major League Baseball player to actually come on your show, but it's also not every day when that said former Major League Baseball player now happens to be an accomplished movie director. And his movie, Reunion 108, is coming out on DVD. It's a project that he put together, and he's going to be talking about that with me tonight, as well as his career with the Texas Rangers and New York and New York Yankees. And when I asked him to be on my show, I was honored and humbled that he said yes. 
So, ladies and gentlemen, former Texas Ranger, former New York Yankee, and now movie director, Mr. Billy Sample. Billy, how are you doing tonight, sir? <laughs> Is this you, Nick? My goodness, what an That's introduction. It, Thank you. Huh? You're welcome. So, what? Yeah, that that was what? nice. Thank you. I uh, And also, I played for the Atlanta Braves, too, but it was just a... The last year, actually, I, when I was traded from the Rangers to the Yankees, I closed on a house in northeast New Jersey, and the next month I was traded again, which is the way it usually happens. <laughs> happens in that sport. I know. What do you call it? It's just so what do you call it? And the funny thing was is that, you know, I remember when you played for the Yankees. Uh, I'll full disclosure, I'm a Mets fan. But I remember when you played for the Yankees in, 1980, in, in 85. And when you came over from the Texas Rangers, you know, you were one of those pieces that we that they had on the bench, and that 1985 season went came down to you know the the uh, the final week, I believe, because I believe that year the Yankees went 97 and 65. It just so happened though that Toronto finished 98 and 64, and uh, it was like one of those seasons that you know a couple like a, an at bat here or a pitch there could have made the difference, but you know. I wanted to talk to you first about your career before we talk about the movie. Sure. You know, yeah, you we can talk about anything. Yeah. Um, actually, that year, we went into the last series having to sweep the Blue Jays and win a playoff game. Uh, so it was going to be a little difficult. We won the first game. I believe it was Weiniger. It was either Weiniger or Hashi that hit a home run that gave us the win in game one. And in game two, we faced Doyle Alexander. And Doyle had had some tough times as a pitcher for the Yankees, so he was really up for that game. And and he brought the victory. And then at the last game of the season, Phil Necro won his 300th. And I think he only threw one knuckleball the whole game, and that was the last pitch of the game. Uh, it was a year where, my goodness, it was Mattingly's MVP season. Pally Arulo had his first full season at third base. Bobby Meacham and Andre Robertson played short. Uh, Del Bear also was on the left side of the infield. Willie Randolph at second. Uh, Weiniger and Hassey behind the plate. It was Guidry's last 20-win, 20-plus win season. Uh, Ricky Henderson, his first stint, his first year of his first stint with the Yankees. Ken Griffey Sr. played most of the outfield, and Dave Winfield did as well. And there were about, oh, about five or six right-handed hitting outfielders that got a little playing time, of which I was one. But I, at that time, I, I sort of worn out my welcome in Texas, the team that drafted me twice, and I played the previous six-plus seasons. And with the talent that the, the Yankees had, I was... I was happy to fill in wherever I could and, and thought I made a positive contribution. <laughs> I had my Yankee half inning one time where I made a diving catch with the bases loaded in a four-game sweep against the Red Sox. And then on the subsequent at-bat against Wade Boggs, I threw out somebody at the plate. And uh, I, I tell people that was my that was my contribution. Take it <laughs> for 97 victories. Now, when you say you were out, you were out welcome at Texas. I remember, 19, I remember your years in, you know, in 1983. They, they finally, what I thought was, did the right thing, and they gave you, you know, the starting job in the outfield. And you had a, you had a pretty decent year. I mean, 12 homers, 57 RBIs. You batted 275. And you know, but then after what do you call? And then the following year, you know, the following year, your production dipped slightly. But oh, it dipped quite a bit. Yeah, thank you, thank you for softening. Well, I know it. I'm it to, dipped I was quite trying a bit. to be nice. 
Yeah, yeah no, you don't. You I'm don't have to. It was so many years ago. To... It's it's fine. <laughs> no, actually, I wish I could put an asterisk beside that. Uh, my uh, my wife had um, a serious attack of multiple sclerosis. She's had it since actually we found out since the since the wedding in 1980, and uh, she spent a lot of time, probably half that summer, in the hospital. And I had two young kids at the time, and we were trying to take care of them and flying back and forth and. Not to use that as an excuse, but I'm going to use that as an excuse. Uh, it kind of wore me a little bit, I think. And that was the final year in Texas, and I knew it's a, it had kind of gone down. Uh, 83 was a good year. Uh, 81 was a good year, but I'd broken my wrist. It seemed as though I couldn't quite get over the hump uh, in the years in which I had an opportunity to, and 83 was probably the best opportunity. But then coming back in 84 and having such a tough season, uh, I knew it was time to go. And plus they had drafted Odeby McDowell in the first round out of, I think Odeby was out of Arizona State. And uh, I knew he was their apparent to whatever open outfield position it was. So it, it's that's the way it works. And uh, I never quite had an opportunity. After my year with the Braves, in which I was in a part-time role and batted 285, the owner's collusion had really started to kick in. So free agents especially marginal free agents, as I was, uh, had a real difficult time finding jobs. Uh, later, the owners were found guilty of collusion, fined $280 million for it, but by that time, my career had, had ended. And there was a little compensation, but you, you can't get the years back. So it's what it was, and now I – it's not that I was going to be married to baseball the rest of my life. I knew that I had versatile interest, varied interest, and – and movie making was one of them, but um, I tell you, tonight is one of those nights where I really feel good about. You can watch hockey, you can watch basketball, you can watch baseball. What a great time of the year! In fact, I had to move out of the room because I don't want to try to peek at the TV while I'm talking. To you. <laughs> oh, it's totally understandable. Trust me, I, I I totally get it. Now, when you played in 1985 for the New York for, for the New York Yankees, back then it was known as the Bronx Zoo, and as Everybody knows in 1985, Billy Martin was your manager. What was it like to play for the legend of Billy Martin? Now, we've seen what he does on TV. You were there live and in person, possibly one of the most colorful characters to ever come across. What was it like to play for Billy Martin? Well, let's back up a little bit. It was Yogi's last 16 games uh, as a manager. And we went six and ten, and it was sort of hanging over Yogi for that two three week period, and then uh, he was fired. And Yogi just commands so much respect. I shouldn't say command, but he just has so much respect from people around him. So that that set people back a little bit. And then Billy came for whatever tenure it was. I'm not exactly sure which tenure. I want to say maybe his third time with the Yankees, but I, I could be off uh, one or two times there somewhere in either direction. Now. It seemed to me that there was always something going on with with the Yankees, even in 85. And this isn't vintage Bronx Zoo days, but there was still a lot going on. In fact, I would tell the reporters that they really didn't have to worry about a story because there was always a story presenting uh, itself to them. And the matrix from Billy to George to the media to the players and back up and around and around, uh, whew, that was a lot. Sometimes it was just difficult to play the team across the diamond. And then when you had all that stuff to throw into it, it made it 
interesting, if if uh, if nothing else. Uh, I think I was in a Billy Martin doghouse. I don't know why. Um, uh, later on, I, I found out that I was well, actually I've made three books: Goose Gossage's book, Reggie Jackson's book, and Roger Kahn's book about an incident that uh, that Gossage and Martin had. And evidently, well, I'll tell you how I, how it came about from my side. Uh, career over, I'm broadcasting for the Braves, um, and we're in San Diego, and Goose is pitching for the Padres, and he calls me over under the under the stands, and he asked me, well, how did you and Billy get along, uh, Billy Martin? And I said, well, I I could tell he wasn't really fond of me, but I, I didn't dislike him. And then I sort of asked, well, uh, why is the reason that you ask? And he told me that Martin had told him to hit me in the head in spring training. And I thought maybe Goose had his timelines off a little bit, but he looked at me like he had been harboring this for a long time and wanted to know why Martin would have said something to him like that. And I think it really hurt his relationship with, with Billy Martin, and it, and I think to the, to this day it still bothers Goose a little bit that he was asked to do that. And I, I thanked him for not doing it. Heck, I was probably so young, he'd hit me in the head, split the helmet, I'd gone to first base, wouldn't have thought anything about it. But um, as hard as he threw, it's might as well not take one off the head there. I was pretty lucky. I only got hit in the head one time, so... And I don't think the guy threw nearly as hard as Goose. So, um, but uh, so I guess that's the kind of relationship we had. At, but I didn't know it, and I didn't know it at the time when I played him to Billy that Billy had told Goose this. It would have been interesting had I known that. I don't know what I would have done or what I would have said. At least I would have known why there was that uneasy feeling that I think he may have he may have had for me. And I don't know the genesis of it, and I didn't try to figure it out. Maybe because we're both nicknamed Billy. I don't know. It could be. It could be something. Something as simple as that. But it, he lived in Arlington, Texas, and he probably saw enough of me playing or not playing when I was there. Maybe it developed from that. Who knows? But and I never tried to figure it out. I, I usually don't try to figure out stuff like that. But going back to your question, what kind of relationship? Did, or what was it like for me under Billy Martin? Well, I, I guess it was different, to say the least. Well, I want to move away now from the uh, from the baseball from the baseball career because you are now a very accomplished movie director with your movie Reunion 108, and your movie actually was a winner at the Hoboken Film Festival. The screenplay, and, yeah. Yeah, for the screenplay, and tell me. How it came about. Now, for those, it's not for the faint of heart. It's an R-rated no, film. No, no, it's it's a strong R. It's um, it's edgy, satirical, and strongly R-rated. Exactly. It's a, it's so, a clubhouse. Right. Yeah, it's a clubhouse movie. It's a baseball. It's a little bit like a college fraternity movie, but more centered. Well, where half the movie takes place in the baseball clubhouse. So it's that kind of clubhouse humor and. I really didn't have to make up or embellish a lot of it. Most of the situations I knew of, and some even involved me. So there's a little, it's a little harsh in places, but there's a lot of veracity to it. How did it come about? What 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 came? How did it just pop into your brain? You know what? I'm going to write this movie, and it's it's going to be about it's going to be about the clubhouse atmosphere. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be for uh, you know how players like interact you know interact with each other how did it all come about 
Well, they say to write what you know, and I, that's what I knew. And I like to write. I was uh, one of the first writers. In fact, I was a writer at the inception of Baseball Weekly, which I guess now has gone through other incarnations. But uh, I enjoy writing. It's one of the things that uh, there aren't many ball players who can write. Maybe a handful. I guess Jim Bounton comes to mind uh, very quickly. And so I've, I've enjoyed that avenue of expression. I had notes all around the house. One time I tried to put a manuscript together and, and it fell through. So I would take some of the notes and, and just think of situations that I had. I had a lot to choose from. In fact, I could probably write about two or three of these from just the interactions that I had. I have to change things and change to make sure that I don't uh, hang anybody else out to dry other than myself maybe. Um, and then I put them all together. My oldest son, Ian, who's also a screenwriter, he has four screenplays and a beautiful one on William Tell that I, we're trying to get out into the, some influential producer. But he helped me put it into the proper screenwriter's format because I'm slow like that. And uh, once we did that, then it's just, just reading like any other screenplay. And I, I thought I had a winner. I, I thought it was going to be difficult to sell it to somebody else, so I I tried to produce it myself, and um, I still owe people. <laughs> and uh, try to produce it myself, and uh, yeah, I'm waiting to to make some significant money off this so I can pay my investors back. And most of them would be me, the the, the lead investor. But um, I thought we could do it. I did it. Uh, I'm pleased with it. The movie did everything I wanted to do, wanted it to do, and um, I have no complaints there. I knew it was going to be hard. We were we were a little lax in publicity, and we had four theater uh, chains, uh, two theater chains, and two indie theaters in which we had theatrical releases in those those venues. And uh, but I figured that I was going to make more money, and more people were going to see it uh, with the secondary market, i.e., the DVDs and and instant download, which will be on shortly. So. I, I I don't have any complaints with it. I think it's going to be one of those cult kind of pictures. It's more of a college fraternity kind of picture, I think. Um, I've had women my age walk out of the theater. And then I've had women my age really love it. So it's just that kind of comedy. But it's um, it'll, it'll educate you on a, on a number of issues, especially uh, behind the scenes in the baseball clubhouse. Now... When you were playing, mm-hmm. did you did what do you call? Did you base this docu this movie based on some of your playing days as what happened in the major league baseball clubhouses? Like we all know that the major league baseball clubhouse or whatever happens in the clubhouse is supposed to be the quote unquote blue wall silence. You know whatever happens in the clubhouse right, right. stays in the clubhouse. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. But in this day, what do you call? In this day and age, the age that we live in now. You know, with Twitter and Facebook and uh, smartphones and everything like that, you know, nothing is ever sacred anymore. Is this something that... Yeah, I see where you're going. Uh, No, I didn't violate anyone's confidence. The the premise of the, the movie itself is that there are two generations of baseball players returning to a minor league city or town in which both generations... One my age and one probably your age, so I had to have one my age so I could play in a movie. And um, so they start comparing. They're they're coerced into uh, telling anecdotes and flashbacks from their on and off the field baseball past. 
So there's nothing in it that I would have gotten directly from the locker room or locker room conversations or that sort of thing. And there's nothing that I would have um, outed some other player in interactions. Uh, most of it, a lot of it's my my own, and a lot of it's from my minor league days, actually. In fact, I had a little more freedom, I think, with the minor leagues than I do in the major leagues because I didn't want people to sit there watching the movie trying to figure out, okay, now what what teammate of his did this or what teammate of his did that. So uh, I, I did have a little more freedom, as I alluded to earlier, uh, writing more about the minor leagues than I did in the major leagues. But some of the stories are universal. Um, and as I said earlier, a lot of them are just mine. And um, uh, so I didn't violate any anyone's confidence. Um, if anybody I threw under the bus, it would be me. <laughs> so, so. Um, but I, but I understand your question. But it's not quite like it's not quite like ball four was to baseball clubhouses at that time. Uh, it's just different and wacky. You'd almost have to see the movie, and I'm not trying to say that just as an inducement to get people to see it, but you'd almost have to see it to understand how different this was than what you're alluding to in the question. So, well, actually, but that's a very good question, of, though. Yeah. In the essence of full disclosure, I wasn't insinuating. I wasn't insinuating that this was like you know you wanted to get back at certain players or anything oh, like that. No, 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 I no. I, 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 no, I, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to insinuate that you insinuated that. But uh, okay. just if, if there's somebody that was thinking that, okay, yeah, he he uh, violated some clubhouse confidence, no, uh, that's not it. Okay. And if you see the movie, you'll understand that that's not okay. the case. No, totally, totally. So okay. last question for you before you go. Um, will there be another movie coming out, or is this going to be – or a screenplay, I should say, that you're – that that you would want to, you know, send out to like some, uh, you know, some of the some heavy hitters in the Hollywood area or anything like that, because this is something that I think, you know, I always say support the indies and everything like that. But being that you are, you had a screenplay that won at the Hoboken Film Festival. Now, what do you call? Which is one of the more underrated film festivals in the United States. And I'm not just saying that because I live in New Jersey. It's true. Well, thanks, Nick. Uh, yeah. Are you going to take Are you going to take this screenplay to say the Tribeca Film Festival, or maybe to Sun to Sundance, and see where it goes from there, or are you just going to go Are you just going to stick with the DVD route and the uh, you know and the uh, and the download route and see and see how that goes? You mean if I write another one, or this one in particular, this well, one? Because after you after you've made an attempt to make money on it, it's not a lot of uh, film festivals will accept your project. Uh, because it's, it's already sold. Um, but if I were to write another one, um, if this does extremely well, I, sure, I could write another one of these. I could write probably two of these and, and still have the same uh, uh, kind of effect, the newness, the sharpness uh, that Reunion 108 has. And a number of the cast, I tell you, it was so much fun to shoot. The actors were great, uh, and, and I think they all really loved it. So I don't think I'd have any problem getting a lot of those same actors back if if the screenplay called for it. Honestly, I think the screenplay should call for it. I mean, I, I personally believe in you. I mean, I know you're you're very genuine and I have to tell you, watching your you are watching you on the video ex try explaining Reunion one oh eight and then the you know, the uh what do you call it, the um 
the uh, blooper of how you were trying to oh. describe Union <laughs> 108 was just nothing but short of priceless. It's what it's what people should do. It's a real person that actually went, you know, yes, he's a former ball player, but it's a real person trying to do something that he has a passion for, and then he's sitting there trying to put, trying to hold up the DVD correctly and couldn't couldn't do it and got a big laugh out of it. And I got to tell you, what do you call it? That what do you call it? That's what drew me more into it because you're a genuine person. Yeah, you're a former major league baseball player. But you carry yourself, you know, extreme, you know, extremely well. You're very high regarded in, in you know, in, the, you know, in, in, in the community. And I really personally hope that your DVD takes off, that the instant downloads take off. And I would love to see another Billy Sample screenplay somewhere down the road. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> well, so. that's that's so nice of you to say, Nick. I appreciate all of that. That, that is very nice and. And, uh, yeah, we had fun. Brent Dolan, who's also the movie's editor, was the one behind the camera uh, when we shot the promo. And, and thank goodness it only took us two takes. But I, I've taken longer takes sometimes uh, working in, in the broadcast industry. But uh, that was a lot of fun. And we'll probably cut a couple more promos, especially after the instant download comes and, and sort of update um, the stature of the of the movie itself and the DVD and the downloads all through the summer. So I appreciate that. Thank you. That was a lot of fun to do. And I'm glad you, you enjoyed the outtakes. In fact, we have outtakes at the end of Reunion 108 because we just thought for the nature of the movie, a lot of those outtakes are a lot of fun, and, and they really were a lot of fun. We had, in addition to me, three other former Major League players in the movie. Uh, Joe Asanio, who pitched for the Yankees in the mid-1990s, um, John Foster, who pitched for the Braves in the early to mid-2000s, and Fernando Perez, who stole a base in the 2008 World Series for the Rays against the Phillies. Uh, he was a, del- a delight, and he was he had a big role in the movie, and, and um, I was really happy for all of those guys and, and to join with me. We didn't need to have that many athletes, but it was nice to have some for the credibility's sake. Yeah, and Billy, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me tonight. It was a great conversation with you. Definitely would love to have you back on as baseball season continues. This way, you can give your uh, you, you can show everybody your journalism tread chops. Uh, because if those that don't remember, I do. Uh, Billy was calling Atlanta Braves games uh, on TBS right. at one time. And you wouldn't have known it would, you know, you wouldn't have known it was him because of, I got to say, the knowledge that comes out of you, I still, I'm still trying to figure out why teams didn't like you. What the hell was wrong with you? That's what he talked. Anyway. I was going to say, why don't you let the people plug it one more time, Reunion 108, and uh, why don't you let the people know where they can find you? Well, in fact, uh, Reunion 108 has a Facebook, and it's probably the easiest place to order the movie, uh, and, and it's also to see the promo and, and a number of other things about the movie. But go to Reunion 108, the Facebook page, and just uh, you'll see it right in front of you. You can shop, you can you can order off the link, or however you want to do it. And, and Nick, thanks again. That was really um, I'm really pleased. Look forward to having another conversation with you about the movie or anything else you want to talk about. And and I appreciate all the kind words. Absolutely. You have a very good night, Billy, and uh, again, congratulations on Reunion 108. I, I think it's going to, what do you call it? I think it's definitely going to take off, you know, in DVD and, and with the instant download. And uh, again, 
would love to see another screenplay because if you can go pull pull something up like that, like you did with the Reunion 108, oh, it's a good, good. I think what do you call? It should be called Reunion 109 or something like that. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to figure out how to label the sequel, but yeah, that's one possibility, and well, we'll figure it out. We'll get through the first one, and then we'll look forward to to the sequel. Thanks again. Hey, no problem. Have a good night. Oh, you too, Nick. Thanks. That was Bill, former Major League Baseball player and renowned director Billy Sample. Again, the movie is called Reunion 108. You can buy the DVD. You can wait for the instant download. Find the Reunion 108 page on Facebook. Billy has some great stories tonight, ladies and gentlemen, talking about his time with the Texas Rangers, the New York Yankees, the Atlanta Braves. I really feel that he's my, what do you call it, that there's going to be a second screenplay. That, but that's just, But that's just me. So we're about to come to the halfway point, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening live to the Mad Scientist Sports Lab right here on Blog Talk Radio, courtesy of Fantasy Sports Warehouse. Go to FantasySportsWarehouse.com for your one-stop shop in everything and everything fantasy sports. And if you haven't heard, it has been launched. The beacons have been lit further. Fantasy Sports Warehouse is in the daily fantasy league game. It's called DFS Warehouse. Again, that's DFS Warehouse. Win big, play big. Trust me, you'll know what I'm talking about. But not only can you listen to the Mad Scientist Sports Live right here on Fantasy Sports Warehouse via Blog Talk Radio, this show happens to be syndicated on many other networks. We're syndicated on the Arena Sportsnet. By Brian Snow, I-95 Sports and Entertainment Network, led by Bobby Galante. War Room Sports by Devin McMillan. The Happy Hour Network, led by Lee Val and Ted Hicks. Die Hard Sports Radio, led by Steve Iskowitz. The Sports Craves, led by Noah Miller. The Asylum Football Network, led by the Ricks, Flieger and Briggs. Nuts and Bolts Sports, led by Cartwright himself, Joe Carrasso. And the newest member of the, of the Mad Scientist family, the Ace Network, led by Alex Cardinale. You can listen to me right here. You can listen to me on all those other networks. Hell, you can listen to me anytime you want. Just make sure you listen to the show and have a lot of fun with it. Before our next guest comes on, I'm going to give you my three minutes of hell about Britt McHen- Brit McHenry. Now, when I first saw the tape, I was appalled, I was disgusted, and I was like, this is another person who thinks that he or she, in this matter, has a sense of entitlement, stuck up, and, you know, didn't give a damn about average Joe Worker. What got me even more was when the tow worker said, you're on video, be careful what you say. And she blatantly, with no disregard whatsoever, still went off on her rant and belittled the worker behind the desk until no end. Now, being suspended for a week, to me, she got off really light. At first, you know, gut reaction right off the bat, fire her. Fire her, get rid of her, 
She's easily replaceable. Anybody can be a sideline reporter. But then I started thinking, I was like, you know what? Maybe a suspension, a longer suspension. Hit her in the wallet hard a month, maybe two. And yet you still get to thinking. She's going to be on the sidelines, you know, during football season with that million-dollar smile, those flowing blonde hair, you know, interviewing, not being genuine, as, you know, Shane Young said earlier. Robert Cobb from The Inscriber put out a very, very good article that needs to be read because ESPN has been looking for the next Aaron Andrews. So, and Rick McHenry is one of those in a long line of trying to be the next ESPN's Aaron Andrews. She's got the look, the looks, I should say. You know, she's okay behind the mic, nothing special. But the sense of entitlement that one has that can go out and say, you know, I'm this Northwestern grad, Notre Dame grad, I got the looks, I work for ESPN, you're nothing, you got a high school education, you work behind a desk, you're dirty, you're this, you're that. You know, everybody has a bad day. Everybody has a bad day. I've had bad days. You guys out there and listening probably have had bad days. But to be warned about a video camera rolling and you still go out and say what you said, I'm sorry, you just showed your true colors and you pretty much don't deserve to be having a job, especially on a sideline. When you're talking to a player, people are going to say now, oh, look at that smile. That's a fake smile. You're not enjoying what you do. You're just there for your paycheck. So, in the end, there are going to be no winners. There are going to be no losers. There's just going to be Brett McHenry making an ass out of herself, getting suspended for a week. She'll be back on the sideline probably in the not-too-distant future when football season starts. This will go by the wayside, just like everything else. And everybody will go about their lives. Is it wrong? Yeah, it's wrong. But what are you going to do? This is the world that we live in. This is the world of social media. This is the world where nothing is ever sacred anymore. You sneeze the wrong way, it'll go viral. This went viral really bad for Britt McHenry. Was the apology sincere? I don't know. Personally, I don't care. But we will see what happens after a week expires. Will she still have a job with ESPN, or will she be working for Fox Sports? Because someone is going to be picking her up. 
We're moving to the second half of the show right now, and joining me live, once again, guesting on my show, you've read him on BlackRedSoxFan.com, you've read him on NGSCSports.com, you've read him on Pro Players Insiders, you've read him on probably, I can't even, the list goes on and on and on, if I were to do that, his segment would be over by the time I'm done with Ladies and gentlemen, coming back one more time, right here on the Mad Scientist Sports Lab, Mr. Antoine Staley. Antoine, what's going on, man? Hello? Antoine, you there? Okay, seems to be technical difficulties with Antoine right now. I don't know if he's on mute or anything, but apparently there's some dead air over there. Antoine, call back in if you can't hear me. So we're going to wait for Swan Staley to call back, and uh, when he calls back in, we'll be good to go. But his segment, we're going to be talking about Major League Baseball, start of the season. I'm a very happy man right now. I am extremely ecstatic. As I stated to Mr. Sample before, I am a New York Mets fan. We're on a seven-game winning streak. Holy heck. This is something that we haven't done in an extremely long, long time. Swan, are you there? Hey, Swan, can you hear me? Swan, can you hear me? I think there seems to be some technical difficulty because I had Twan on the on the uh, thing, and of course this is Block Talk Radio, so what else is new? Anyhow, um, as I was saying, the New York Mets are on a seven-game winning streak right now. Degrom once again, Degrom once again pitching. You know, brilliantly, the Mets pulling out a victory, winning 5-4 over the Florida, over the Florida, Mar- Florida Marlins. Listen to me, Miami Marlins, and something special may be happening right now with the New York Mets. And I really feel that is it possible that we could that we could turn a corner? Is it possible that you know all the patience in the world of what happened? you know, finally has come to fruition to the fact that, you know, Terry Collins' job won't be in jeopardy, that the young guys that we have, the young guys that we have are going to be, you know, what they were, what they were meant to be. It's, it's hard to describe because we haven't felt like this since 2006, 2007 when Willie Randolph was the manager. You know, with everything that's happened to the Mets in the last five years, especially, you know, with the Madoff scandal, the payroll being pared down, you know, the, 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 the penny nickel diming of the, uh, you know, of the salaries and stuff like that. Looking at this past off season, only signing Michael Kadire and John Mayberry Jr., losing Zach Wheeler to injury, in which everybody was like, oh, my God, here we go again. But it seems that the clubhouse is much looser. It seems that the clubhouse is much, you know, calmer 
And I really feel that the mix is perfect. You got the veterans and David Wright and Curtis Grandison with the kids and the Grom and Duda, Flores, Lagares, uh, you know, you have John Meese, Bartolo Colon. It's just you know, there's something magical happening. We're going to try this one more time. Third time is normally a, cha- a charm. Twan, can you hear me? You probably can hear me, but for some reason, the phone line is not working. I don't understand this. You can probably hear me just fine. I can't hear you. The mic is on. I just don't know what's going on. Sorry, Twan. We're going to have to try this again next week, I guess, because I can't what do you call it? I can't hear a word you're saying right now, unfortunately. So, again, ladies and gentlemen, my apologies. For some reason, it's just not working tonight with Blog Talk Radio. I had no issues the first hour, but then again, you know, it just so happens that there's always something that goes wrong with uh, with with this show. But anyway, back to Major League Baseball. And... It's just that, you know, when you think about it, you look at the lineup lineup that they have, and you look at, you know, you look at, you know, what's been going on in New York, and you see Jacob deGrom pitching seven shutout innings. You see Travis Darnold, who is one of the crown jewels in the in the in the uh, in the Jose Reyes trade, you know, starting to come to fruition. And you see Wilmer Flores, you know, who's going to have a good stick. You just got to worry about the glove at shortstop. You know, like I said, Juan Lagares in the outfield, and. It just seems to me that they're playing with such calm, with such fluidity. Yes, I understand. It's early in the season. We're only like 10 to 12 games in. You know, it's a 162-game season. I understand that. But every year as a Met fan for the last few years, we've gone on with a sense of dread. And, you know... For the first time, for the first time, I can actually say, I'm happy to be a Met fan. I'm excited to be a Met fan. I'm jonesing to be a Met fan. I can't wait until something happens where, you know, is this going to last the whole season? I'm excited about this team. I really am. And, you know, you look at the standings, and you see the New York Mets at 9-3, first place, undefeated at home, going for the sweep against, you know, against the Miami Marlins, who were everybody's sexy pick to be giving the Nationals a run for their money 
and makes me very, very happy. It really does. That's not to say that the Washington Nationals are not going to turn it on, because let's be honest. When you have a lineup that's led by Bryce Harper, Jason Wirth is going to get healthy, Rendon when he gets healthy, Ian Desmond, you know, and a pitching staff, my God. When you have a pitching staff of Steven Strasburg, Jordan Zimmerman, Max Scherzer, Gio Gonzalez, Doug Fister, and you have to leave out Taylor Rourke and put him as your long reliever. Don't you understand that, you know, maybe right now, if you're a Met fan, it's a false sense of hope type of deal that the Nationals with that type of pitching staff, with that type of lineup, with that type of bullpen, it's only a matter of time. It's only 12 games in. Anything can happen. But, hey, we're baseball fans. We're allowed to dream. We're allowed to have these harbingers of, you know, excitement. Now, if you're, you know, a baseball fan in general, I can pretty much tell you that this is going to be one of those seasons where I think every division is going to have an amazing race. And the reason why I say that is because I think for the first time in a very long time that there's going to be parity throughout all of Major League Baseball. And... And I got to say that when you look at everything, here, you know, leading into the season, you know, Derek Helling from Outside Pitch MLB who was amazing breaking down all the divisions. You know, I just got to say that when it comes down to it, the leaders will break away from the pack. They really will. And I really do feel that in the end the New York Mets are going to be you know one of those teams that may shock you but again it's a 162 game season and I got to say that I'm sorry it's I'm trying to get, trying to think of the words you know when your mind is just going 100 miles a minute right now but you don't want to say anything like really really stupid or something like that that's just the way I am right now because 
I want I don't want to play the homer. I really don't. When you're in this business, you can't afford to play the homer. It's just that when after like I said, after all these years of everything that's gone wrong for this team, you just have no choice but to get excited. Another thing is you're looking look at a team like the Kansas City Royals. <clears throat> You know, their magical run last year, that went to a seventh game in which they ended up getting, you know, shut down by the legend of Mad Bum, who had one of the greatest postseasons of all time. But you cannot take away what they did going all the way to Game 7 of the World Series. And they did it with pitching and defense. You look at them this year, they're 8-3 right now, and their run differential is plus 26, for cripe's sake. You look at a team, you look at a team like the, like the St. Louis Cardinals. Possibly, possibly, one of the best run franchises in Major League Baseball. They will always contend, bar none. You look at a team like the Pittsburgh Pirates. This is a team that for the last two years, after 20-something consecutive years of sub-500 baseball, finally turned a corner and have made the playoffs the last couple of years, played a five-game classic with the St. Louis Cardinals two years ago. They got... They got shut out, unfortunately, by the Giants in the wild card game last year. But you have to understand where I'm coming from on this. You know, people talk about the Los Angeles Dodgers and their $250 million payroll. You talk about, you know, a team like the New York Yankees and how they dominated baseball for over 20 years in which, you know, you talk about their payroll. Yet, you look at the Tampa Bay Rays. You look at the Kansas, you know, of you know, of vintage before Joe Madden left and before last year, where the bottom completely fell out on them. You look at at a team like what the Kansas City Royals, in which their their young guns have finally turned a corner. You look at a team like the San Francisco Giants. One year you're world champions, the other year you don't even you don't even sniff the playoff. But three championships in the last six years with one of the best general man best general managers in Brian Sabian, and possibly one of the best managers. Baseball coaches and Bruce Bochy, you know, that ever, you know, sat in a dugout. There's no telling what's going to happen this year. There really isn't. And I have to say, we have a caller from Skype coming in, 661 area code, 661, state your name and where you're from. Hi, I'm uh, Chris Wassel. Uh, how you guys doing? Hey, Chris, how you doing? Thank you so much for calling in a little bit early. was having a little technical difficulties with our last caller to come in for Major League Baseball. And uh, I had about 15 minutes of trying to ad-lib, which is never, never easy on radio, especially when you're trying to get your thoughts out. Your thoughts are going a million miles a minute, and you can only, like, articulate what you want to say without bumbling your words left and right. So there were a lot of, like, awkward pauses or anything like that. But how you doing, sir? I'm doing pretty good, enjoying the – who, who sprang this 85-degree weather 
in, in Jersey in April. I, I'd like to thank them personally. I know. I am, like, extremely, extremely happy right now that it's, like, 67 degrees at 11.15 at night and, what do you call it, enjoying this beautiful weather that we're having over here. Over here. But it's always frozen when it comes to you, because as everybody knows, Chris Wassel is part of Project Roto and many other websites. He is an NHL expert extraordinaire, and we are talking NHL playoffs. Three games just went final right now with Winnipeg and Anaheim going in the first period. My beloved New York Rangers, you I knew it was going to happen. They, what would you call it? They lost tonight 4-3 to three against the Pittsburgh Penguins. When this matchup came out, Chris, I tweeted you and I said, I hate this matchup. I hate this matchup. Did I mention I hate this matchup? Just for the sheer fact that whenever we play the Pittsburgh Penguins, it's always going to be a lump in your throat, heart beating out of your chest type of deal. This is not the team that was up 3-1 that we came back and won four games to three. The tables have turned. Now we're the one seed. They're the eighth seed. Series is tied 1-1 right now. And um, I have to say this. Take away the first period of game one. Pittsburgh has outplayed the Rangers five out of the last six periods. Is, is is your stomach feeling all sorts of knots yet? Oh, my stomach yeah, was in knots when, like I said, my stomach was in knots when 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 the matchup came out. I I said this from the beginning. The biggest problem with the New York Rangers is a simple fact: two problems. One, you don't like to say this about an all-world goaltender, but for whatever weird reason, and it's not biased like some Ranger fans will call this. Lundqvist, maybe he just likes playing in longer series. I, I don't, I don't get the logic. It's not necessarily all his fault, but for whatever reason, in these early rounds, where look, the Rangers have a team that should win this in four or five games. They do. Every every part of this matchup dictates that they have a they have a blueprint to play this Pittsburgh team. They executed it well in the first 20 minutes of game one, and then for whatever reason, they go completely away from what they do well. That's one thing. The second thing is deep in your crease goalies don't win Stanley Cups. The last 20 20 guys in this uh, in this scenario, including some Trevor Kid guy or whatever you you know, and and a few few other choice uh, um, goaltenders that used to play very deep in their crease, do not they they don't win the top top prize. They just don't. It may work in the Swedish Elite League. It may work in the Olympics, but it doesn't work in in, in the playoffs. You have to be more aggressive. The problem is when Lundqvist, it's a weird balance for those that are listening out there and for Ranger fans. It's the funniest thing. Lundqvist will go too far out in his crease and get caught and then play too deep in his crease and at times get caught. 
Um, what what happens basically? The deeper you play in your crease, the easier it is to make saves to your left. Uh, in theory, the blocker side is sometimes the harder. Your glove side is supposed to be the fastest side for obvious reasons. It's the, the, the natural reflex is there. That's your strong hand. Um, but if you're that deep in your crease and you're seeing some hard shots from these – look, Patrick Hornquist had one of the hardest shots in the NHL mostly because it's usually coming from 12 feet and it's coming straight. Um, we saw it tonight on one of the goals. And then, of course, look, there there were some unlucky breaks. Steve Downey gets in the way of a Chris Kunitz shot <laughs> and gets a primary assist for it. Look, look that's unlucky. You know, that, uh, that's one of those that goes right to Brandon Sutter and it goes in the net. There's nothing Lundquist can do about that at all. The Crosby goals, though, you got to think Lundqvist has to have one of them. It, they're not soft goals, Nick. No, they're not soft goals. Just maybe one he should have had, perhaps. Um, this, this, this isn't Andrew Hammond game two in overtime. The sky, sky is not falling for, for the Ranger fan out there. Don't, don't, don't worry too much about this. Unless, say... The Penguins come out in game three and torch the Rangers. Say it's one of those 5-1 games, like a couple, then okay. Then you then you, you have a right to be a little bit alarmed. But until yeah, then, I'm not, don't I, I, I'm not trying to jump off the edge or anything like that. It's just that, you know, these are the type of games, these are the type of series that make you – you know that make you que- that that really do make you queasy, and you know with Crosby lighting the lamp twice, Malkin pretty much you know Malkin you know imposing his will, Kunitz having his goal and uh, you had a goal and two assists tonight, and it, it was almost as if you know it was almost as if I was watching what you know one of the first four games from last season's playoffs, and. The thing that makes me feel better about this series, though, is that the Rangers had the best road record in the NHL this season. They were the President Trophy, the President's Trophy winners. This wasn't a team last year that had to scratch and claw its way to the playoffs. I still feel we're going to win this series. I, I what do you call? It? I just feel that I knew this series was going to go six or seven games. I still feel this is going to be a six or seven game series. I still have, I'm still going to have knots in my stomach. Because if you don't have knots in your stomach, whether you're a Ranger fan, a Penguin fan, or a hockey fan in general, especially at this time of year, there's something seriously wrong with you. Moving over or, now or to... You, go ahead. Or you just have a cast iron stomach, Nick. Nah, I, I certainly don't have that. Nah, just not happening. <laughs> anyway... Anyway, moving over to the what do you call? It? Moving over to the other series going on right now in the Eastern Conference: Tampa Bay versus Detroit. Tampa Bay, yeah, they were dominant today, five to one. They rebounded from their from their game one debacle, in which you know Tyler Johnson scored two goals. Ben Bishop looked like the Ben Bishop of old, yeah, and uh, what do you call? It? They pretty much you know, and they pretty much you know imposed their will against the Red Wings. You know, it was a, they played physical, they played hard, and, you know, they took it directly to the Red Wings. They punched them in the mouth, and the Red Wings good, didn't have an answer for it. 
What did you get? What did, what did you take from this game? Is this what we expected in this series, or do you still think that this is going to be a, this is going to be another tough series that can go six or seven? It's going it's going to be tough, but it may only go five or six just because. Look, am I scared? If I'm if I'm Tampa Bay, am I scared with, against either goalie now? No. Uh, that that's the one thing that today today absolutely proved by far and away. Um, some little surprises from today. Steve Stamkos, uh, Stamkos, Stamkos, Beijing Stamkos. Where, where where are the goals, Steve? Oh, you didn't really need it, but it would it would have been nice to nice to have perhaps seen. Uh, Stamkos did have a secondary assist, but let's be honest, on the uh, Kalorn goal in particular, <laughs> Callahan did all the work. So I mean, it's just yep. like Stamkos. All he did was basically was credited with winning a faceoff, so he got an assist. Um, but you you went down and you looked at this game. Even the penalties in this game you saw early, yes. Yeah, Brian Boyle did get a little over-exuberant early in this game for, for, for those that didn't watch. And it did cause a bit of a scrum. And I think that actually was the turning point in this game, honestly. Um, you know, it caused Kyle Quincy to go off the deep end. The extra two minutes resulted in the Johnson, Johnson goal. And pretty much from there, it didn't matter what was going to happen. I know, I know, I know. The shots in this game, for the were the for the most part very even through two periods. As a matter of fact, it was eighteen eighteen. Um, but if you looked at scoring chances and you looked at quality chances, the numbers are and more and more towards Tampa Bay, and that's how the Lightning have to play in this series. They have to play loose. They have to play fast. They have to let Ben Bishop make the saves he needs to. He didn't make them in game one. He made them in game two. It's, it's a very simple formula. Tampa plays a shot suppression game, but the difference between them, say them and a St. Louis team, and by the way, this is a team that the Rangers should cry mommy because if they face them, they're going to have some problems, no question. Um, game a pace that is often a notch above everyone else. Sometimes that causes them problems. And I think the case with Detroit where, again, like last year against Boston, they had that one game where they stole it. And then as the series went on, it just became more and more apparent that they didn't quite have the guns to win the series. Detroit might steal one more, Nick, but honestly, barring something weird happening in this series, this is this is Tampa's. Okay, good to know. Good to know because I was feeling the same way. I, it's just that when they, whenever you see Detroit in the playoffs, you always have that feeling that they'll steal a series that they have no business stealing. And, you know, when I saw this matchup for them, I was like, you know what? This could be one of those series. But if Tampa Bay were, plays like they did today, the rest of the series, this is this is going to be over and done with before you can even uh, before you can even say boo. So, moving on to the west to the Western Conference, St. Louis going up four to one, evening the evening their series 
after losing game one at game one at home. Tarasenko, oh my God, he was like, he, wow, you know, he was like on fire today. He was held to an assist without a shot in game one, and today he responded with his first career playoff hat trick, and you know, it was a virtuoso performance from one of the best players on on the on the St. Louis Blues. But for some reason, Chris, I'm still not a believer. I mean, call me crazy, but I'm just still not a believer in the St. Louis Blues. I I just feel that Minnesota is probably going to have their number. I, what, what what do you say? It's it's an extremely close series. It's a very even series. St. Louis does kind of play into Minnesota's hands. Minnesota is a faster team. Minnesota may not. Minnesota, you could argue, has the same or bet maybe even better depth one through nine than St. Louis does. Um, you have the Charlie Quails, the Matthew Dumbas of the world. Dumba is a guy that probably hasn't even scratched his potential fully yet. That that's a scary thought. Dumba has a hell of a shot um, and changes speeds from the blue line. Probably the best I've seen since a very young Shea Weber used to, before Shea Weber got so happy with the slap shot and he got too happy with it. Um, you have guys like Marco Scandella who can, who can fire it from the blue line. You have depth. You have Thomas Vanek when he wants to show up. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to like about this team. And Devin Dubnik, even though, yes, I understand, he, you know, he lost today and he gave up three goals, but he made an unbelievable save in the almost empty net situation. <laughs> Tarasenko, Tarasenko technically could have had four goals in this game. Uh, but he came back and dove back and made an awesome cross-body save, which I'm sure if it's not on YouTube, okay, it is on YouTube, but you get the idea. They play much better at home. I know Minnesota's power play is horrendous. Oh, God, I played Rangers horrendous, but... For some reason, it's a little more tolerable in the friendly confines of the Excel Center. Their penalty kill is lights out. Uh, Even today, yes, I know St. Louis did get that one early, but even that was kind of off a bit of a broken play. And Tarasenko scored falling down. I mean, that's not going to happen very often in in the playoffs, unless it's Alex Ovechkin. But looked at this game today. St. Louis simply played a little bit better. They they ratcheted down the take. You know, they they didn't have uh, quite as many giveaways as they did in Game One. They didn't commit as many bad penalties. As a matter of fact, only one, and that was key. They have to stay. They have to stay out of the penalty box. They have to continue playing five on five. That is their advantage in in this series. Minnesota has the has the wheel to keep up with them. They have the goaltending. Look, Jake Allen is very good. People don't realize this. But you're right. You have enough reason not to believe in the St. Louis Blues right now. And it's not because of the players. It's partially because of the coach. That's the biggest problem right now. So... Yeah, it's going to be fun when this thing shifts to Minnesota because I have the feeling you're going to see a lot of Minnesota's top six 
and a lot of speed. Now, the other thing, the other big news that came out today was that the Edmonton Oilers won the lottery to pretty much draft a once-in-a-generation player in Connor McDavid. And this is a team that had the first overall pick in 2010 in Taylor Hall, the first overall pick in 2011, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, the first overall pick in the t- 2012, Neil Yakupov, the seventh overall pick in 2013 in Darnell Nurse, and the third mm-hmm. overall pick last June in Leon Dratatil. Talking about ineptitude personified, ever since the 2006 Stanley Cup run, which shocked the living hell out of just about everybody that year, myself included, I have no words. I mean, I don't know what you call it. There are are a lot of people out there that were not thrilled that the Oilers won the lottery again. Whereas you had a team that was so pitifully poor in the Buffalo Sabres that didn't win the lottery. There was a team like the like the Colorado Blue Jackets, excuse me, the Columbus Blue Jackets, who had the best record the last two months of the season, in which there were there were executives who shall rename who shall remain anonymous. They don't want their names out there. They were actually hoping that Columbus would win the lottery just to mm-hmm. stick it to, you know, just to stick it to basically anybody but Edmonton. That was the whole thing, anybody but Edmonton. And yet there it is, Edmonton, once-in-a-lifetime player, you know, since for Sidney Crosby and Connor McDavid. Personally, I don't think it's going to matter because Edmonton's always been, been a cluster, you know what. It, it's ugly up there. And yet, they're going to get the number one pick. I I I wish people could go just go just look just go on YouTube and see Connor McDavid's reaction after Edmonton wins the lottery. Just just Google it, search, do whatever you have to do, take a watch, and see the look on his face because if. He really is happy about playing there. It did not look like it in in that in the uh, follow up interview that he had um, on Hockey Night in Canada at all. He, he looked completely crestfallen. I think he fully expected he was going to Buffalo or even Arizona. Uh, Arizona would have been a nice landing spot for him just because of the fact that his line mates, uh, Max Domi. Max Domi's there. I mean, that's that's you know, a pretty good deal. So I mean, you know, he's got he's got a couple couple guys that he's played with in the OHL. Um, Anthony Duclair, who was recently traded, yeah, good job, Rangers, good job there. Um, so he would have been able to re- reunite with both his old line mates. And I had to be honest, Edmonton was the. I thought it would be Toronto. I really did, Nick. I thought, I, you know, it's set up. You started going through the names as they were revealing them. I'm like, oh, here comes Toronto. Here, here comes the golden frickin' placard. And the world just falls down on its knees, and, you know, meteors hit all over the East Coast, and, and hockey ends as we know it. Um, 
fortunately, that did not happen, and very thankfully that did not happen. And then, of course, the next pick is Edmonton, and there's the goal. As soon as I saw that placard turn gold, I just thought to myself, my God, watch. I didn't even get to finish my thought, and I see the tweet. This person and 646 others that retweeted so-and-so's tweet in in absolute disgust, and wow. Um, You know, we'll see what happens. It's a tough, it's a tough, tough place to play up in Edmonton. It really is. You know, you have you have a coach up there now that at least you think the guys will play for, but they have no defensive clue up there. None. Uh everybody I've talked to up there has said the same thing that um came in and said and I quote, Wow, these guys can't even you've seen the videos of four Edmonton players going on the one side of the ice during penalty kill. Um so it's it's a long road for them. And can Connor McDavid change that a little? Sure. But they're still going to give up goals. And Connor McDavid defensively is not all that good. I, I hope he's McDavid is not a very good two way player. He has I mean, the reason why he's been able to because his offensive talents and his puck vision and sense is that much superior compared to who he's playing with. So Obviously, you're going down the sunrise in June. And Edmonton, the Snowbirds will be happy, and you know, you'll, you'll make the pick. You'll put his on, and good luck because he's going to need it. Now, Buffalo actually has a very, very good, you know, consolation prize, as they say. Because there is no doubt in my mind that with the second pick of the draft, they will select Jack Eichel. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, you know, yes, Connor McDavid is a once-in-a-generation type of player that, you know, you talk about Crosby, you talk about Gretzky, you talk about Lemieux or something like that. Jack Eichel is nothing to is nothing to like to cry at if you're a Buffalo Saber fan, because a lot of people there there are some pundits out there that actually put Jack Eichel on the same on the same platform as Connor McDavid. What do you think? I'll be honest with you. I take a lot of heat for this on a daily basis. I'd still rather have Eichel. I really. Rather have a guy that knows how to frickin' win and not just be on a team that's just ridiculously stacked like Erie is right now. Um, the, it's just one of those preference things. You cycle, find those how to drink American and Canadian beer. Okay, that, that really isn't uh, uh, something that should sway anybody. But you see that he, he can play a tougher game. That's important in the NHL. He doesn't get rattled as easy. I watched Steve Santini a couple of years ago in the World Juniors absolutely light up Connor McDavid almost on every shift. And Connor McDavid, his former self in that game against the U.S. 
that's not something that can just be taken lightly. Sidney Crosby is the same way. The Rangers did not make his life very hard tonight. Okay, yeah, he might have gotten hit blindsidedly, and that just made him angry. But there wasn't none of that in your face. It wasn't sustained. If you do that, you rattle these top top flight players. The game right now at this moment is set up that way. You can track and whack players, as as I've called it, and get away with it. Maybe it'll change in the next couple of years. I don't know. But right now, I want a guy like Jack Eichel that can defend himself. Eichel's not afraid to drop the gloves. Let's see it throughout here at BU. Maybe his coach had a heart attack every time he did it. But he's the type of guy that you'd like to see on on the Buffalo Sabres. Now, look, he's got a decision to make. He's, he's talked about it. He'll probably wait till after the draft, whether he comes back to BU for one more year. And you almost have to admire that as a fan. Yeah, there's going to be there's going to be fans that are disappointed that he's not uh, that he may not play uh, right away. But it's a respectful one. It's nice to see a guy that's not just one and done. <laughs> uh, the fact that he's taking this long decision. Hey, you know, give him all the time in the world. He's going to be a top-flight player in this league. Uh, change that at all. He reminds me kind of a little bit of a John Tavares in the sense that he has the oh, – just, and a, just a little bit of that sniper quality in him. And I think it turned out pretty well for Tavares. So don't fret. Don't worry that, oh, God, just because they didn't get the player they wanted, it's the end of the world. Now, the other big news that came out this week, which kind of sort of shocked me a little bit, was that the Boston Bruins fired Peter Chiarelli after they didn't make the playoffs this year. And, mm-hmm. you know, I sat back and I watched it, and I was like, wait a minute, what am I missing here? Number one, you know, number one, this guy only a couple of years ago, you know, led, you know, built a team that won a Stanley Cup. Last year was a president's won the president's trophy. This year, you know, they suffered a lot of injuries. You know, they they suffered from some seriously bad play as well. And what do you call at the end of the year when they didn't make the playoffs, okay, I understand that. Usually that goes on the coaching staff, but they ended up firing Chiarelli. I just wanted to know, do you agree with that? Because me, personally, I don't. I really feel that they dropped the ball and because this is a guy that has done amazing things as an executive for the Boston Bruins. I really don't think that it was his fault that this team cracked the bet. Uh, big problems here with this. One, unfairly or fairly, he's going to be the guy when it when it all, all shakes down that trade it. Tyler Sagan. That's that's the one mistake. There there should have been a way where either you can find a way to mend fences, do something, whatever it needs to be done to keep a guy like Tyler Sagan around. Sagan is a guy obviously big time, ninety to hundred point upside. No question about it. They could have used that this year, especially with faulty injuries. Just a bit. You have aging players. 
nothing really could be done about that because when Peter Chiarelli built this team, Nick, he kind of built himself into a corner. It's like sitting there and painting in a room and seeing the buff gallon of paint and realizing you're in the opposite corner of where the door is. And that's what happened. It's unfortunate, but it happens. And he could – look, had they made the playoffs, guess who, who they would have faced in the first round? Come on. Take, take a wild guess, Nick. Uh, you got me. The New York they Rangers. They would have played the Rangers. I know. And I know. You, you, it would have been more than just queasy feeling for the New York Rangers. It would have been outright, oh, God, I've got food poisoning. Because that's what it would have felt like. Now I know, but, but the and thing that, about like that, no, I totally get where you're going. That this was an aging team, you know, the injuries, the second trade. I get that. The problem mm-hmm. I have with it though is that why is it that the general manager gets blamed for the amount of injuries that this team suffered this year? And as everybody knows, the reason why Tyler Sagan was traded was because he was pretty much a pariah, you know, not only with the fans in Boston, but also in the locker room. I mean, a little bit. I've seen worse. You know, and, you know, both parties knew that a change of scenery was made. The fault that I find in Chiarelli with training second is he did not get enough. No, he I didn't. Thought, and that's. I just think that he wasn't helped with, you know, all the press leaking about the problems, you know, and that Sagan was a problem child, you know, and everything like that, and he couldn't maximize the the potential of what to get in a trade, you know, in a trade. But, you know, you look at the makeup of the team. Still got the veterans. You still got some good young players, mm-hmm. but you know, injuries come. Injuries happen. You can't blame the GM. And, you know, I would have brought him back at least this year to try to rectify the situation in which he could have, you know, he could have. is a very smart, smart hockey man. He would have, to me, I think he would have made the moves that needed to be made in order to, you know, make the team, A, younger, and, two, make the team better, and this would not happen again. So... You know, I just don't, you know, to me, I just don't, I, I just feel that in in the end, he's the one that ended up getting a raw deal. I, he did, no question. I mean, look, yeah, did he did he make some mistakes? Sure. Do I think that maybe this is a way for Boston to kind of say, hey, we're going to bring somebody in from the organization that we want as one of, quote, unquote, our guys? That's possible, too. Now, the sort of B question in this is, does Claude Julien survive? And it all it all depends on if they go internal. Julian is back next year. I don't think he should have been back. He should have been kept last year even. But, look, this guy has nine lives as a coach. He got fired in New Jersey for dividing the entire locker room. And literally, Lou Lamarell had no had zero choice but to fire him right before the end of you know, right before the end of the regular season. Uh, you know, he went to Boston. Yes, he won a Stanley Cup thanks to Scott Gomez. Somebody hit a post in overtime. 
no way Boston should have won that series. Uh, certain water bottle incident. This guy has had some seriously good luck <laughs> along the way. And, yeah, okay, they did have that two goals and 40-something seconds thing against Chicago. I, I know. But he has, he has ridden one hell of a magic carpet ride, Nick. So it, it's tough. He probably will be back. He'll get a shot to rectify it, and Peter Chiarelli doesn't. Yeah, that that's the part that actually doesn't sit right with me. The fact that more than likely, Claude Julian, who deserves a lion's share of the blame for this, for not being able to properly juggle lines, will be back. And yeah, Peter Chiarelli won't. Chris, you there? Yep, sure am. Okay, yeah, no, I you just cut off for a second, but <clears throat> Claude Julian I saw watched a few of his the few of the games this year and I was like he's not making the proper moves. He was not making the you know, me he was not changing on the fly as they would say. And it seemed like he was just set in his ways, let it go, and hence the reason why the team went stagnant the last month and a half of the season. I personally think that when the new GM gets hired, that's when Claude Julian's going to be let go because I can't see him surviving, you know, a very a slow start to the 2015-16 season, you know, when that happens. So. I'm going to be very interested to see what happens, you know, in the coming weeks and months in Boston with regards to that. Chris, as always, it was a pleasure having you on. Definitely going to have you on in not the distant future to continuously talk about NHL playoffs and anything breaking that's been going on. Why don't you let the good people know where they can find you and uh, tell them about what you do with regards to daily fantasy sports. Ah, uh, you, you know, Nick, it's almost like where don't I write these days? Um, but it's always a lot of fun. Uh, I do do a weekly column for Dotter Hockey. Uh, I do some of their daily ramblings during the playoffs. We do offer a different uh, kind of perspective as far as daily fantasy picks. Yes, daily fantasy hockey is still going on. I, I know people think, oh, yeah, oh God, I shouldn't get into it. It's it's too dangerous. I'll lose all my money. Actually, it's not the case. <laughs> you actually have almost as be- as good of a chance of winning uh, now as you as you did at, towards the end of the season. So not much of a worry there. I also write over at the fake hockey. I, I do a little work still uh, floating around for uh, the folks at uh, NHL.com. I do a little little bit of help over at Rinkatology doing their their playoff uh, postseason pools. I, I do work over at Hockey This Week on, on some of their radio. And you could find me occasionally here on, you know, floating around on this network, for example, on uh, Sirius XM even. And every so often the Fantasy Sports Network talking with my good old buddy Patrick Mayo, who does not know a lot about hockey, and yes, he's Canadian. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much, Chris, and uh, have a good night, okay? All right, buddy. You have a good one. Thank you. That was Chris Wassel. 
from Dollar Hockey and all the other websites that he mentioned. Like I said, if he were to come on my show and I wouldn't mention everything that he wrote for, there would be pretty much, you know, no time for him to actually speak. But uh, I'm going to close the show now with the Aaron Hernandez verdict. The look on his face when he was found guilty of the first degree was priceless. A lot of people were shocked that the jury came back with such a verdict. A lot of people were thinking that he would get found guilty in the second degree. But the prosecution played this case perfectly. The prosec- We know they couldn't find the gun. We know, you know, that, you know, the evidence was very, very marginal. They set the perfect roadmap to what happened the night Odin Lloyd was killed, and they backed the defense counsel into a corner. It was a virtuoso performance by the district attorney's office up in Massachusetts. The saga is still not over. He's still going to be tried for the, for a double murder. So we'll see where that goes. But when you're found guilty of first-degree murder in Massachusetts, you automatically get life without the possibility of parole. Yes, you automatically are granted the right to appeal, but I really can't see Aaron Hernandez winning on appeal on this. What bothered me a little bit, though, I saw his, you know, fiance sobbing with Aaron Hernandez's mother, and we know that she testified during trial and everything like that. I wonder if she yet realizes that her testimony helped put her fiance in jail. So were those tears of guilt or were those tears of love? We don't know. But poetic justice finally took place. A jury of our peers decided that celebrity doesn't matter. The funny thing is when a couple of jurors said that Robert Kraft's testimony was one of the reasons why they felt they had to find him guilty in the first degree, in murder of the first degree. Because the conversation that Robert Kraft had with Aaron Hernandez, they said, was really an eye-opener for everybody. Who knew that a conversation between an owner and one of his players would help set the tone of what a jury was thinking about when rendering their verdict. I have to say that the combination of the prosecution and the defense's lack of performance really had a lot to do with guilty in the first degree. I'm just interested to see right now with the other shoe with double murder that's going to be taking place. My name is Nick Ficarelli. I am the mad scientist of sports. You can find me on Twitter at NAF underscore FSW sports. 
And as always, you can listen to me live here every Saturday night, 10 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Pacific Time, right here on Blog Talk Radio via Fantasy Sports Sports Warehouse. Don't fret, ladies and gentlemen. After tonight, this show will be syndicated during the week on Arena Sports Network, I-95 Sports and Entertainment, War Room Sports, Happy Hour Network, Die Hard Sports Radio, The Sports Crave, Asylum Football Network, Nuts and Bolts Sports, and the Ace Network. So, without further ado, I will be back next week, same time, same channel, right here on Fantasy Sports Warehouse. I will be doing a 2015 NFL mock draft show with a whole bunch of guests. It's something that you don't want to miss. Until then, i got to erase the chalkboard because i got to get ready for next week's experiment. Got to turn down the beacons. I will see. Actually, you will listen to me next week right here on the Mad Science of Sports Lab. Until then, the lab is officially closed. Thank you for listening to the Alex Cardinelli Show here on Ace Network. Alex hopes you enjoyed the show. Please check us out every Tuesday and Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern for our weekly talk show that will cover anything and everything. Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern for Chef George Monroe Hour. Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern for our fun Saturday Night Live. And every other Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern for Cooking with Alex Cardinelli, where you'll get tasty and delicious recipes. Share today's show on your Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus account by copying and pasting our show URL to your account so that your friends can listen to our awesome talk show. Have a great night. Alex Cardinelli's show on Ace. It's now off the air. And show. podcast belongs to the Ace Network, Alice Cardelli Entertainment Network. It may not be reused, redistributed without permission from Alice Cardinelli himself. This podcast was recorded live from the Springfield, Massachusetts studio and Ace Network.